You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. When I was in seminary, we were required to read a genre of book that was known as a feshrift. Somebody say feshrift. Feshrift is a German word that means celebration writing. A feshrift is a single volume or multi-volume work that is dedicated to celebrating the work and the career and the contributions of a living scholar. And what will happen is that some of the colleagues, friends, and uh, students of a particular scholar will gather together and they will write contributions. Each of them will take a chapter and they will contribute their chapter to the book. And then what happens is over time, you have this dedicated celebration, this collection of writings that not only celebrate the work of that living scholar, but that also carry that work forward and show why that honoree, that scholar, is important. It's recognized in the writing of a feshrift that no one person can completely capture the life and work of a great scholar. It takes a whole community of people in order to capture that work and honor the honoree. The book of Acts is like the first volume in a multi-volume feshrift in which God's people celebrate and honor the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In this volume, this book of Acts, we have covered over the last few months, the first century followers of Jesus have carried on the work and and have shown why Jesus matters. They have commended the work of Christ to future believers and also to the world. And we have witnessed how Christ shaped their trajectories. And, And there's this implicit sense in the text that no one person and no one community and no one era of believers can completely capture all that there is to say about Jesus. That they were delighted to commend the person and work all around the world of the person and work of Jesus. But built into the book of Acts is this recognition that it's going to take a community of people to not only tell the story through celebration, but also to carry that work forward, to carry it forward into the end of the age. As we conclude our series in the book of Acts this morning, our series has been entitled From the Church to the World. God has given so much to the church, but we were never meant to be a cul-de-sac of God's blessing. We were meant to be a thoroughfare, a community through whom the gifts and the blessings of God pass to the world. Everything that God has given to you has has been for the life of the world. And that is what propels us. That's what stabilizes us. That's what keeps us consistent on the mission. And we want, I mean, really, isn't this what we want for Grace Mosaic? We want to add our volume to the feshrift that celebrates the personal work of Christ through our life together through our service to our neighbors, through our participation in God's mission, we want to add our contribution to effectively commend Christ to our neighbors 
and to live faithfully in light of who he is ourselves. I want us to remember why we started this series to begin with. We started this series in the first place for one primary reason. This is our 10-year anniversary as a church. Ten years ago, we launched this church together. And God has been faithful as we have sought to live on his mission. We have seen people come to faith. We have seen people with lots of brokenness experience healing. We've seen marriages on the rocks be recovered. We have seen all kinds of faithful service go out to our neighbors. We've seen neighbors who have had their whole perspective on the Christian faith shift because they experienced something different through Grace Mosaic. So many wonderful things that God has done through this little community. We've met the needs of neighbors. We have upheld neighbors. We've had the opportunity to share the hope that we have with our neighbors. And a lot of churches, once they get further in their maturation stage, as churches grow, just like individuals, as they grow out of the toddler phase into the teen phase, as churches grow, there is a strong pull, a strong tendency for churches to become ingrown and inwardly focused. And the minute a church becomes ingrown and inwardly focused, it has ceased to live into its very reason for existence. The church is the only organization that was intentionally created by God for the benefit of those who are not yet its members. We were created for the benefit of the world. And if we don't keep a laser focus on mission, then what was a mission that became a movement will become a machine and ultimately a monument and finally a morgue. Filled with deadness. We want to maintain a vibrant mission. And so if we're going to do that, we started at the beginning of this series. We said that we must explore the most significant book that speaks into the mission and the life of the church on mission. So what I would like to do for the rest of our time today is I want to do a, a flyover recap of where we have been and then put a bow on this baby. Okay? All right, so what I'd like for you to do, if you have your Bible with you, I want you to open up. We're going to walk straight through each chapter. And y'all are like, this is sounding long. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm going to try and stay at 30,000 feet. Y'all pray my strength in the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, so let's start. Acts chapter 1. At the very beginning of this book, the missionary document of the church, Luke signals to us, Dr. Luke signals to us that this is volume 2 of a larger work. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are one work. And he starts off the book of Acts and he says, In the first, the first writing that I made to you, O excellent Theophilus, Theophilus, lover of God, I told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what he did in the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke. He told you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. The implication is that in the book of Acts, he's going to tell us, all that Jesus continues to do and teach through his church. And right there we see a, a critical distinction between Christianity and every other faith. And it's this. Every other faith talks about a, a teacher who once lived and who is now dead and their teachings live on. Christianity talks about a, a teacher who he himself lives on. We don't have a distinction between the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke and the church of Christ in the book of Acts. 
We have a distinction between the earthly ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke and the heavenly ministry of Jesus in the book of Acts through his church. And so what we see is that at the very beginning of the book, we see that this is volume two of a larger story. And not only that, we see the ground of mission in chapter one, if you're looking at it. What Luke tells us right from jump is that Jesus, raised from the dead, presented himself alive, the text says, with many convincing proofs. With many convincing proofs, he presented himself alive. The Greek text behind this signifies that which causes something to be known in a convincing and decisive manner. This is demonstrative proof. This is empirical fact. This is not a mythology. This is not a group hallucination. This is built upon the stubborn empirical fact of the resurrection. In other words, what Luke is telling you is that everything that follows in the rest of this story, I'm going to tell you, takes place. Why? Because he lives. Because he lives. He presents mission, not just as an activity of the church, but as the very identity of the church. The church doesn't just add mission as an activity to their, their ethical norm. They view themselves as a sent church. That's what mission means. Missio from Latin, sent. They know that they've been sent by the Lord into the world. They know that the church is not just a building you go to. The church is not just a service you attend. It's not just a charity you support. It's not just a club in which you socialize. The church is the beloved missionary community of God sent into the world for the redemption of the world. But at this point, the church is in need of power. Jesus tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. This is the, the thesis of the whole book. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The bullseye. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we get to Acts chapter 2, and we're told that when the day of Pentecost had arrived, God poured out his spirit. And it was no accident that he did so on the day of Pentecost. Because Pentecost was the annual Jewish festival, 50 days after Passover, where the Jewish people would celebrate the first fruits of the harvest. And they would bring their offering in before the Lord, and they would do a wave offering before the Lord. And it was them saying, we believe that this is just the beginning of a greater harvest that is to come. And what we see through the book of Acts is that greater harvest arriving. There are allusions to the exodus where Moses goes up Mount Sinai and comes back down with the law. Well, Jesus, after his exodus from the grave, ascends to the Father. And instead of sending a new law back down, he sends his spirit down. Why? It makes sense because in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is presented as the man of the Spirit. And what happens in Acts is you see a community of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes to reproduce in the church the very life of Christ. He wants to clone in the church the heart of Christ so that they go out and truly continue his ministry. They share the heart of Christ with the world, the love of Christ with the world. The way Christ served, that's what they do in the world. That's what we see happening. And not only this, 
we see that there's this, there's this statement with all the different ethnic groups that were there. They were still all Jews from the diaspora. And this list of the table of nations was a rhetorical device that the Romans used to talk about the extent of the Roman emperor's rule. Right at the beginning, Luke is saying, I'm going to tell you about a greater kingdom and a greater rule that extends far beyond what Caesar could ever hope to have. This is the reversal of Babel. The scattering of people and languages, now it's all brought together because the righteous one ascended. And after Pentecost, this power comes. You may say, power to do what? Take control of the world? Power to control their enemies? No, actually, that power shows up in a very different way than we expect power to show up. Their power shows up in their boldness to preach Christ as the Lord. They preach Christ as Lord of the scriptures. They, say, they show how the scriptures bear witness to the life and ministry and death and resurrection and exaltation and lordship and salvation that's in Jesus. They announce Jesus as the Lord of scripture. They announce Jesus as the Lord of the Christian and call people to repentance and invite them into a new baptismal identity. And they announce Jesus as Lord of the church. They collectively commit to the apostles' teaching over the spirit of the age, to the fellowship over individualism, to hospitality over tribalism, and to the prayers over self-reliance. The Lord worked in their community because their community matched their gospel. People looked at their community, looked at their gospel, and said, symmetry. That's a far cry from where a lot of churches are today. And we want to make sure our community matches our gospel, which is to say, if our gospel is about grace, people ought to be tasting grace as they encounter us. If our gospel is about those far off being brought near, then we ought to be the kind of community that's bringing those far off near, ministering, bringing those on the margins into the center of our heart and our life. When we get to Acts chapter 3, we see the, prof the profound healing ministry of the church as they heal a man who is lame at the beautiful gate. When these believers came to faith, they didn't run from their old relationships. You notice the early part of this story is about Jewish people following a Jewish Messiah ministering to their Jewish neighbors because they didn't run from the people that they, they were rocking with before Jesus saved them. No, Jesus saved them, and then they go back to those relationships with the hope of the gospel. That's what we see them doing. They are ministering to their Jewish brothers and sisters, their Jewish compatriots. And their neighbors come to know Jesus as a healer because they first come to know the church as a place of healing. And when the church is known as a place of healing, the healing ministry of the church makes a way for the word to go out. The word of God becomes much more beautiful and believable to their neighbors because they were conducting a beautiful healing ministry among their neighbors. The, 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 the healing ministry of the church made a way for the word to go out. And not only did the gospel itself, but also that same healing ministry of the church began to work on the plausibility structures of their neighbors so that Jesus became more believable. That, that, that the message that Jesus actually rose from the dead became more 
reasonable as they started to see how that message was transforming the church and what the church was doing in the world as a result of their faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit blessed the good work of the church to validate his good word. And this enabled the church to make their appeal to the world. The church only had one sermon. And they preached that one sermon, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, his grace for sinners, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, his righteousness credited to his people as a gift, and his willingness to take their sins and their debts and their failures and to do a great exchange. This was their one sermon. God's renewal of the whole creation, the the coming and arrival of God's kingdom, and the greater fulfillment to come. This was their one sermon, and they never departed from their message. In Acts chapter 4, though, we see that contrary to what you might expect, as they did good to their neighbors, it wasn't always received as good. And they came into opposition from the world for their love for the world, believe it or not. Their attempts to love their neighbors back to their senses, their attempts to show their neighbors the love of Christ and to hold out the hope of the gospel to their neighbors brought them into conflict with the world. And though they had no fancy theological degrees, they had received a love that was beyond degree. And all of their neighbors and their opposition, the text tells us, could tell that was recognized that they had been with Jesus. The early church was fruitful and they had a transformative effect in the world because their lives, their attitudes, their commitments, their relationships, and their message all trace back to their union and communion with Jesus. They were recognized by their resemblance to Jesus because they lived in vital union with Jesus. They were ordinary people, but they had an extraordinary message and an extraordinary communal ethic And that grew from communion with the Lord. Our neighbors can look at some Christians and tell that they've been with Tucker Carlson. Our neighbors can look at other people and tell that they've been with Rachel Maddow. But can they look at us and tell that we have been with Jesus? That's what Dr. Luke holds out to us. He commends to us, live your life in such a way that your neighbors can tell that you have been with Jesus. And not not only could they be recognized by their resemblance to Jesus... But they also expressed their power like Jesus. They used their power to heal the wounded, to confront corrupt social powers in their day, to liberate captives, to bless their enemies. Communion with Christ gave them clarity about the truth of the world and freed them from the illusions and mythologies of their culture. They were able to commend Jesus, to follow Jesus in the teeth of strong opposition. They knew Jesus to be so faithful and the gospel to be so good that they couldn't help but speak of what they had seen and heard. And Luke is trying to get God's people over the ages to be in such a place that they can't help speaking of what they have seen and heard. That you can't cower me down. You can't intimidate me. You can't shame me away from me. I can't help but speak of what I have seen and heard. By chapter 5, they faithfully engage in necessary conflict with the world for the life of their world. They viewed their conflict with their non-Christian neighbors like an intervention. Have you ever seen an intervention where someone is destroying their life through addiction? 
And all those who love them gather together and say, we need to do an intervention so that we can wake them up. So we don't just watch them destroy themselves. If we claim to love them, we got to do the uncomfortable thing. We got to have an intervention. And the church in the first century said, we got to have an intervention with a world captivated by idolatry. With a world that is bound in sin, we need to have an intervention. We need to share the grace of God. And that's what they do. <coughs> they were not conflict avoidant, which is cowardice. And they didn't love conflict, which is toxic. They were willing, because their greater agenda was to share the love of Christ, they were willing to enter into the conflicts that came to them on behalf of sharing that love. They expected conflict because they knew the teachings and the example of Christ. They preached the good news of Jesus Christ, not the good news of happy circumstances to one another. They didn't have a soft prosperity gospel. They wanted to follow in Jesus' footsteps. And they had a clear understanding of what was at stake. The future of their neighbors, their neighbors flourishing and the glory of God. And when it came to the decision between preserving their own reputation by being silent about the gospel versus upholding the Lord's reputation by sharing the gospel, they put the Lord's reputation ahead of their own reputation. And some of them even got a bad rep because they were unwilling to let the Lord's rep go unheralded. Our calling to us. They, con they considered that their neighbor's eternal comfort was much more important than their temporal comfort in avoiding the conflicts. By Acts chapter 6, we see this group of people who were extremists for love addressing the two key dynamics of gospel ministry. Faithful word and faithful deed. Word and deed. And they were willing to humbly address their justice issue, because the church had a justice issue in Acts chapter 6. The Greek widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Only the Jewish widows were getting their, their share. So when the, the Hellenists, the Greeks, raised their voices and let it be known what was going on, the, the apostles, the leaders of God's church, when they find out there's a justice issue in the church, they don't duck it, deny it, or get defensive. No, they immediately address the justice issue. Why? Because they knew that justice was at the heart of the gospel. They knew that they couldn't go out into the world as an unjust church, hoping to commend a just God. They knew that faithfulness and fruitfulness in the mission required that they do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God as the prophet declared it. They knew that both word and deed were indispensable to the mission. And right from the beginning of the Christian church's missionary explosion, we see word and deed as the pistons of the community. And we should never fall into the false dichotomy where we so prioritize teaching theology and Bible and doctrine and neglect the good works that we're to do in the world, nor focus on doing all the good works and kind of leave the, the theological and the doctrinal teaching on the side. We see very dysfunctional examples of both of these imbalances in our culture today. And I am convinced that every bit of growth that the Lord has given Grace Mosaic in these 10 years has been because he has blessed us to grow as a word and deed community. Let's continue in that way. Amen. They were able to address 
the issues, and the apostles saw it as an issue of calling. We see the, the heightened importance of both word and deed, and one doesn't stand above the other. They are locked together in tandem. The apostles don't see social engagement and social concern and social welfare for their neighbors as second to the preaching of the word. No, they simply identify it as an issue of calling. They were called to preach the word, and they called a seven-man diaconate in order to engage, a seven-man cross-cultural diaconate in order to address the issues. And so what you see is the church is also hip to the power dynamics that need to be addressed because it is actual Greek people who are then brought on to the diaconate to help them see what they could not see prior to. The mission flourished, we are told. It says at the end of that chapter, and the word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. The mission flourished even among the most unlikely people to come to faith. That's like, that's like the equivalent of a, 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 an imam coming to faith, right? A leader in a different religious context coming to faith. That's right. <laughs> amen. All right. I take that's a, that's, that's a children's amen, okay? And we come to Acts chapter 7. We get not just a story of faith of one of the deacons of the church. We all, it's also an important hinge point, not only of the book of Acts, but of the entirety of the story of the Christian church. The church will never be the same after Acts chapter 7. Because that statement that Jesus made to his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, they actually had been doing all their ministry up to this point among the people who were like them, among their own countrymen, people who shared their languages, their customs, and their culture. But the Lord had much more for them, and the only way that they will actually move out into the rest of the world, the only way they'll get into Samaria and the ends of the earth is the Lord sends persecution on them in the martyrdom of Stephen. And we begin to see the contours of what a witness is through the life of Stephen. God opens the floodgates of persecution and opposition, but he scatters his church to gather his people. And he gathers his people in order to send them back out to scatter them. And there's this breathing in and out that happens after this persecution. And we see in this text that Stephen has a profound impact, not only because he lives like Christ, because he, but, but also because he dies like Christ. And as he's dying like Christ, calling forgiveness down on his enemies, asking the Lord to receive his spirit, there is a man there at whose feet the cloaks of those throwing the stones were laid. And the greatest missionary, the greatest Turk to ever live is created through the martyrdom of Stephen. And Jesus identifies with his witnesses. He stands for his witnesses to give them his royal ovation and welcome into the kingdom when they finish their course. And from this point, the mission pops off. In chapters 8 through 10, we have four major conversions. The Samaritans, Jesus' word is true. They come to faith through the preaching of Philip. 
Later, Philip runs into a black African, an Ethiopian eunuch, who's a baller and a shot caller because nobody had chariots at that time except ballers and shot callers. Nobody had Isaiah scrolls except ballers and shot callers. This man is high up politically. He's rich financially, but he's empty inside until he hears the good news of the gospel. And then he goes on his way back home rejoicing. What do you think that man did with the gospel? Took it back to Ethiopia. And then the greatest enemy of the Christian faith becomes its greatest advocate. When the Lord Jesus Christ, glorified, shows up on the road to Damascus, he knocks Saul of Tarsus off of his high horse, and he transforms that man's life. And from this point, the story begins to shift as, as Peter fades out, Saul Paul begins to fade in, and there are these major conversions. So Saul is the third major conversion. The fourth major conversion is Cornelius, the Gentile, in chapter 10. <coughs> Excuse me. What we see is that the Lord works on the heart of Peter by letting down a sheet filled with fried alligator, bacon, pork chops, hog maw, chitlins. He lets it down, and Peter's like, I don't need all that, Lord. That's unclean. And the Lord says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. Three times, all of a sudden, ding dong, Cornelius at the house. The spirit begins to teach Peter. This isn't about the food. It's about the way your heart recoils at those who are different from you. And Peter, the Lord says, if there's anybody who should recoil at the filth and foulness of another, it's me toward you. For all of your sin. But I have not reviled you. I have not recoiled from you. So you must not recoil from the Gentiles. And Peter becomes a fifth conversion. He has a cross-cultural conversion. You know, there are many, many Christians who have not yet had that cross-cultural conversion. They still think of the Christian faith as like through the lenses of Renaissance art. Where you could, you know, see a movie and Brad Pitt is cast as the Ethiopian eunuch. Right? <laughs> You got to read the Bible in color. <laughs> Do you see the dynamics here? Peter has a cross-cultural conversion, and then he goes back to his Jewish brothers and sisters, and they're like, yo, Pete, what you doing, dog? And he's like, look, what had happened was I shared the gospel with them. The spirit descended on them just like he descended on us. So who was I to get in the way? And they were like, okay, the Lord is bringing the Gentiles in. And then we are led to understand what God does in the creation of this new church at Antioch. At Antioch. Antioch. Luke holds this church out to us as the model. Okay? There, were ethnic, there was an ethnic-centric church in Jerusalem. It had its place. Luke speaks favorably of that church. But what he does literarily is he commends Antioch to us as the model going forward. Why? Because this was a cross-cultural church with a cross-cultural leadership that represented the known world. And because they were a cross-cultural church with cross-cultural leaders and cross-cultural members, they became the missionary hub for the Apostle Paul in all of his missionary journeys. They were glad to send their money and their resources to support this global mission because the peoples of the world were not a faceless people. 
They looked at folks in their community. It was not just bland and generic Africans. They saw their fellow community members and said, I want to see their people get the gospel. And then it was reciprocated. They wanted to see me and my people get the gospel over here. So they became a hub of cross-cultural leadership and mission. And you know what? This was the first place that the followers of Jesus were called Christian. So instinctively, in, in, intrinsically, to call someone a Christian, to call someone one of the king's people, assumes that they're about this cross-cultural life. That's what Christian meant. Hmm, they're not Jews exclusively. They're, they're not Gentiles exclusively. They're not Herodians. They followed the Christian. They're Christians. When they looked at the life, this was the first place in which the Lord had made one new man out of the many. And this is what proliferates through the rest of the book. They become the sending church for the global mission. And by the time we get to Acts chapter 15, the church clarifies the gospel in light of the new dynamics of their mission to the Gentiles. They were trying to figure out how do you sort out the difference between a cultural expression of the gospel and the core of the gospel. And what they realized is that certain cultural realities within the Jewish community, they didn't need to lose their Jewish culture. However, they couldn't impose their Jewish culture on the Gentiles. Because when the gospel comes to the Gentiles, it creates something unique among the Gentiles. And then together, there is a glorious mosaic, if you will. Day. In Acts chapters 16 through 20, we see the continued growth of missional and evangelistic cross-cultural churches spreading over the known world. Antioch, Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Ephesus. It wasn't just isolated believers that the mission produced. It was churches with faithful leadership anchored in the gospel, unmovable locked into their orthodox Christian faith, which produced a vibrant mission. All through the book, Luke continues to show you, this is the recipe, so to speak. The, this is the blueprint. And when God's people live into the blueprint, Luke continues to repeat this phrase, and the word of God increased, and many were added to their number. You see how many times... Luke summarizes for us and says, this is the way, friends. This is the way. And in Acts chapter 21 through 28, from this point, Paul, the apostle, bounces from one trial to another. And he stands before one Roman official after another, pleading his case for the gospel, for the Lord Jesus Christ. He preaches the gospel so far and wide that we eventually arrive with Paul at his dream destination in the heart of the empire, Rome. Rome, that was the destination. And in this last chapter, we find Paul awaiting an audience with the Caesar himself, with the emperor. The Lord, through all of his trials, through all of his sufferings, through his beatings and his abandonment and his shipwreck and, and, and his 
His being in danger, the Lord has brought him to proclaim the gospel to the most powerful person in the known world at the time. This, by the way, Acts chapter 28, this is the prison stint in which Paul writes his prison epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Gentiles eat pork chops, right? <laughs> now, now check it out. Paul is fruitful even to the end in his suffering. Because if you read in the book of Philippians, what do you hear Paul say to the Philippians? He says, as he's concluding his letter, he says, oh, by the way, and the saints in Caesar's household greet you. You see what Paul was saying? You can chain me up, but the gospel will never be chained. And every guard that was chained to Paul, as they changed out their shifts, they would get locked up to Paul, and Paul would be like, how you doing? <laughs> and the guard would be like, ah. He's like, you know why I'm in here? I'm in here because I proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Do you know about him? Let me tell you about him. Like, and as every person rotates out, well, guess what? It starts to become a buzz at the water cooler of the, for the Roman guards. And pretty soon, people start to come to faith, even in Caesar's household. The gospel has made it into the very center of the power structure, but not through their grasping for power, but by their letting it go. And depending upon the Lord to do what only he could do, depending on him to change hearts, giving up manipulative ways in the world. No, they trusted the Lord. They just held out the light. They just held out the hope. And the Lord saved people. The words of Jesus at the very beginning have truly unfolded. The apostles have received power to be his witnesses, and they have borne witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the story is not finished. This is the end of the book of Acts, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the church's mission. There are more volumes to add to the feshrift for the Lord Jesus. Arthur Pearson, an old school cat who wrote a commentary on the book of Acts in 1895, he said this. He said, quote, Church of Christ, the records of these acts of the Holy Ghost have never been reached to completeness. This is the one book which has no proper close because it awaits for new chapters to be added so fast and so far as the people of God shall reinstate the blessed spirit to his holy seat of control. You see what Pearson is saying? As far and as fast as God's people place the spirit in his seat of control in their lives, there will be more chapters to add to the story. I can't wait. I think that glory is going to be a celebration because we're going to hear the story told by the saints from around the globe and through time. Not only how they got over, but how they shared that hope and brought others with them. What do you want the story of Grace Mosaic to be? What do you want it to be? I long for the story of Grace Mosaic to be that it was on earth, in Northeast D.C., as it is in heaven. 
because we loved and served our neighbors, because we held out the hope of the gospel, because we were true to our missionary identity, because we remained immovable and steadfast, locked in on Christian orthodoxy, because we knew it to be the healthy, life-giving teachings of the Lord that would bring our neighbors back, that would draw them home. We are characters in this story, and we live within the same redemptive historical epoch as these first century believers. We live under the rule of the living Jesus who has ascended. And we are called to continue his ministry in the world, to walk by the Spirit, seeing that great prayer come to fulfillment. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let us turn our hearts in this way, seek faith and repentance, band together, connect with one another, and participate in this mission for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.